This is a recording of The Messenger of Salvation, The Messenger Message Christology of DNC 93.8 and its implications for Latter-day Saint missionary work and temple worship by Matthew L. Bowen, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Victor Worth. Abstract. Several of the Prophet Joseph Smith's earliest revelations, beginning with Moroni's appearance in 1823, quote the prophecy of Malachi 3.1 with the Lord suddenly coming to his temple as messenger of the covenant. Malachi 3.1 and its quoted iterations in 3 Nephi 24.1, Darkland of Covenants 36.8 and 42.36-133.2, not only impressed upon Joseph and early church members the urgency of building a temple to which the Lord could come, but also presented him as the messenger of the Father's restored covenant. Malachi's prophecy concords with the restored portion of the fullness of the record of John and its messenger Christology in DNC 93.8, in which Jesus Christ is both the messenger of salvation, the word, and the message, also the word. The ontological kinship of God the Father with Jesus, angels, literally messengers, and humankind in Joseph's early revelations lays the groundwork for the doctrine of humankind's co-eternality with God, DNC 93.29, and the notion that through worship one can come unto the Father in Jesus' name and in due time receive of his fullness, DNC 93.19, CF DNC 88.29. DNC 88 specifies missionary work and ritual washing of the feet as a means of becoming, through the atonement of Jesus Christ, clean from the blood of this generation, DNC 8875, 85, and 138. Such ritual washings continued as part of the endowment that was revealed to Joseph Smith during the Nauvoo period. Missionary work itself constitutes a form of worship, and temple worship today continues to revolve around missionary work for the living, the endowment, and for the dead, ordinances. The endowment, like the visions in which prophets were given special missionary commissions, situates us ritually in the divine council, teaches us about the great messenger of salvation, and empowers us to participate in his great mission of saving souls. On May 6, 1833, a portion of the fullness of the record of John was restored to the prophet Joseph Smith, CFDNC 93.18. In this restored fragment, John bore witness that he saw the premortal Christ, quote, and he bore record saying, I saw his glory, that he was in the beginning before the world was. Therefore, in the beginning, the word was. For he was the word, even the messenger of salvation. DNC 93, 7-8. John's language combines the concept of a pre-existent, divine, personified word, Greek logos, has a development on the idea of a pre-existent, divine, personified wisdom or intelligence, see e.g. Proverbs 8, 22-31, cf. Abraham 3, 19-28, with the concept of a divine messenger invested with a fullness of divine authority. John's description of Jesus Christ with the appositive, even the messenger of salvation, recalls Malachi's prophecy of the coming of the Lord to his temple and the appositive, even the messenger of the covenant, from the 5th century BCE. 
Quote, Behold, I will send my messenger, Malachi, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, Malach Haberit, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Malachi 3.1, 3 Nephi 24.1 In this article, I will argue for a possible reading of DNC 93.8 and the concept of messenger there, as a part of which I will demonstrate the importance of the messenger prophecy of Malachi 3.1 in Joseph Smith's early revelations. Within the interpretive framework of Malachi 3.1, DNC 93.8 presents Jesus Christ as both the Father's messenger and his message, or word. Relatedly, DNC 93 restores the knowledge of a similar type of relationship between God and humankind. Quote, Man, like Jesus, was also in the beginning with God, close quote. that is, co-eternal with God because, quote, Intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can be. DNC 93.29 Thus, humankind has the capacity for eternal enlargement. See DNC 93.19 Joseph Smith's realization of these truths had important implications for the early missionary work of the church, the elders preaching of an expanded gospel as, quote, the word and the emerging concept of worship and temple among the early saints as connected with receiving the Father's fullness. This discussion will proceed in four parts. First, I will discuss the importance of Malachi 3.1 in Joseph Smith's early revelations, including the meanings of Hebrew Malak and Greek Angelos, and how the reiteration of the concept of the divine, quote, messenger suddenly coming to his temple, quote, quote, in Joseph's revelations, reinforce the urgency of building a temple. Second, I will explain the Christological significance of Jesus Christ as the messenger. Then, third, I will look at Jesus Christ as the message. Fourth, I will explain how Latter-day Saint temple ritual and worship began as a means of preparing the early elders to proclaim the gospel message as messengers, Abraham's seed, and thus become, quote, clean from the blood of this wicked generation. DNC 8875, 85, and 138. I hope that this approach will help us more fully appreciate the Lord's explanation for giving the fragment of the fullness of the record of John in DNC 93. Quote, I give unto you these sayings that you may understand and know how to worship and know what you worship, that you may come unto the Father in my name and in due time receive of his fullness. DNC 9319. 1. I will suddenly come to my temple, the importance of Malachi 3.1 in Joseph Smith's early revelations. In 3 Nephi 24-25, Jesus quotes Malachi 3-4 through to the Lamanites and Nephites at the temple in Bountiful. Because this prophecy postdated Lehi's departure from Jerusalem, it was not included among the prophecies on the plates of brass, and was thus not available to the Nephites and Lamanites. Nevertheless, Jesus' quotation of Malachi 3.1 in 3 Nephi 24.1 helps us to understand how he interpreted this prophecy and offers a potential hermeneutical guide to the quotations. Malachi, Behold, I will send my messenger, Malachi, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord, 
Ha'adon, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, Malach Haberit, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Third Nephi 24.1 Thus said the father unto Malachi, Malachi, Behold, I will send my messenger, Malachi, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord, Ha'adon, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, Malach Haberit, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Jesus' quotation of this text places the prophetic words of Malachi 3-4 through in the mouth of God the Father. With the Father speaking to Malachi, my messenger, Malachi, in the second instance, constitutes a wordplay on the name of the prophet Malachi. But the mention of this sent messenger can hardly have reference to the prophet Malachi himself, but must refer to another messenger as a forerunner to the coming Lord. The phrase, Messenger of the Covenant, Malach Haberit, also plays on the name Malachi. Like the priest as the Messenger of the Lord of Hosts, Malach Yahweh Tzabaot, in Malachi 2.7. But it has no reference to the prophet Malachi himself and seems distinct from the prophetic, My Messenger, who is sent to prepare the way. The Messenger of the Covenant in whom Israel delights, who shall come, is best identified as Ha'adon, the Lord whom Israel seeks. In Malachi 3.1, the King James Version translators used the word even rather than and to translate the Hebrew conjunction vav to emphasize what they saw as an appositional relationship between the Lord whom ye seek and the messenger of the covenant. The Book of Mormon English translation also retains the word even here. Regarding the Malachi 3.1 text and translating the Vav as introducing an appositive, Minyan R. Jacobs writes, quote, Concerning the clause, yea, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire, the Vav in the formulation introduces the appositive that further identifies the Lord, Ha'adon, as the messenger of the covenant, Malach Haberit. While the Vav may be the simple conjunction introducing the third figure, the messenger or angel of the covenant, the presence of a third figure seems unlikely in this context. By identifying the messenger of the covenant with Yahweh, one identifies the being as divine rather than human. The enforcer of the covenant in whom the people delight is Yahweh, who will execute justice through judgment. Close quote. The fact that the Lord whom ye seek and the messenger of the covenant are both the subject of the verb come, Hebrew bo, heavily implies that they are the same individual. The question posed in Malachi 3.2, 3 Nephi 24.2, quote, who shall abide the day of his coming, close quote, further suggests that we are dealing with the coming of a Lord also identified as a messenger. In other words, quote, the images of Malachi 3.2, usually associated with Yahweh, refer to the effects of the day of Yahweh. Close quote. It should be further noted that the resonance of the descriptions the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant he shall come would have been particularly powerful for the audience present at the temple in Bountiful 
who were witnessing the literal fulfillment of those words. In quoting this text, Jesus Christ unmistakably identifies himself as the Lord whom ye seek, and the messenger of the covenant who would come. We find the prophecy of Malachi 3.4 thoroughly intertwined with Joseph Smith's early recorded revelations. Importantly, Joseph Smith stated that Moroni quoted, quote, a part of the third chapter of Malachi, close quote, to him four times on the evening of September 21st and the morning of September 22nd, 1823. Moroni's citation of this prophecy in the context of eschatological restoration and other Old Testament and Abrahamic covenant prophecies about to be fulfilled suggests that the part of Malachi 3 to which Joseph here alludes may have been or included Malachi 3, 1 through 4, and thus the prophecy of the messenger of the covenant suddenly come into his temple, Malachi 3, 1. In 1829, during his translation of the Plates of Mormon, Joseph encountered a version of Malachi 3 through 4 representing what Jesus quoted to the Lamanites and Nephites gathered to the Temple of Bountiful, as noted above. Mormon took care to preserve and include this prophecy as the last in a sequence of important Old Testament prophecies Jesus quoted on that occasion. See 3 Nephi 24-25. In his visible angel-like descent from heaven, recorded in 3 Nephi 11.8, his subsequent reorganization of the church and the reestablishment of the Father's covenant, Jesus acted in his capacity as the Father's messenger of the covenant. The Lord whom they sought had suddenly come to his temple as messenger of the covenant. This prophecy in its temple context in the Book of Mormon offered Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, and their earliest associates some notion of the need for a Latter-day Temple with a view to the Latter-day pre-millennial fulfillment of Malachi 3-4. The earliest explicit quotation of Malachi 3-1 in the canonized revelations that became the DNC also constitutes the first explicit mention of a temple in these same revelations. A December 9, 1830 revelation directed to Edward Partridge when he came with Sidney Rigdon to meet the prophet Joseph Smith concluded with the Lord's abrupt statement, quote, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Wherefore, gird up your loins, and I will suddenly come to my temple. Even so, amen. DNC 36.8 the promise, I will suddenly come to my temple, represents a direct quotation from Malachi 3.1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. In speaking the promise in the first person, the Savior identifies himself as the messenger of the covenant, and emphasizes his imminent coming to a temple. The revelation to Edward Partridge, DNC 36, whose calling as bishop would directly pertain to the financing of a temple, came almost contemporaneously with the revelation of the vision of Enoch to the prophet Joseph Smith. In that vision, the Lord promised, Righteousness and truth will I cause to sweep the earth as with a flood, to gather out mine elect from the four quarters of the earth, unto a place which I shall prepare, and holy city, that my people may gird up their loins and be looking forth for the time of my coming. For there shall be my tabernacle, and it shall be called Zion, a new Jerusalem. Mosiah 7, 62. 
The building of the temple would be vital to the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the establishment of Zion. Two months after the revelation to Edward Partridge on February 9th and 23rd, 1831, the Lord gave his law, DNC 42.2, to the church through the prophet Joseph Smith, as previously promised on January 2nd, 1831, and recorded in DNC 38.8. This law included the principle of consecration, intended to help the saints achieve the conditions of Enoch's Zion, described in Moses 7.18. Quote, Properties in the hands of the church, or any individuals of it, more than is necessary for their support, close quote, were to be consecrated to the bishop, Edward Partridge, quote, to administer to those who have not, from time to time, that every man who has need may be amply supplied and receive according to his wants, DNC 42.33. The Lord also instituted this consecration, quote, for the purpose of purchasing lands for the public benefit of the church, and building houses of worship, and building up the new Jerusalem, which is hereafter to be revealed, that my covenant people may be gathered in one in that day when I shall come to my temple. DNC 42.36 Here again, the Lord reiterated the immediacy of his coming, and laid out the Zion conditions that would need to prevail among the saints at that time, including the existence of a temple accepted as his. Still, less than a year after receiving DNC 36.8, the prophet Joseph Smith received a similarly worded promise at a, quote, time when there were many things which the elders desired to know relative to the preaching of the gospel to the inhabitants of the earth, and concerning the gathering, close quote. The Revelation again quoted Malachi 3.1, The Lord who shall suddenly come to his temple, the Lord who shall come down upon the world with a curse to judgment, yea, upon all the nations that forget God and upon all the ungodly among you. DNC 133.2 Again, in using the language of Malachi 3.1, the Lord re-emphasized his imminent coming as messenger of the covenant of the Father. CF 3 Nephi 21.4 Moroni 10.33, i.e. the Abrahamic covenant, and that he would suddenly come to a temple that he claimed as his. The intended effect of the revelation upon the implied audience would have been renewed urgently for the building of a temple to which the Lord as messenger of the covenant would suddenly come. From a theological and Christological perspective, Malachi 3.1 and its quotation in Joseph Smith's early revelations is important for several reasons. Like Psalm 110.1, the Lord said unto my Lord, Malachi mentions two lords, one of whom is sent as a messenger and suddenly comes to his temple. The Hebrew word for messenger in Malachi 3.1 is malak, clearly an echo of the name of the prophet Malachi. Like the Greek word angelos, malak originally meant messenger, but came to have the more developed sense of angel as describing a class of heavenly beings. Malachi 3.1 prophesies the sending of two messengers. First, the prophecy mentions my messenger, Malachi, who shall prepare the way before me, clearly a reference to a prophet or angel or both, like the eschatological coming of Elijah, the prophet promised in Malachi 4, 5-6. Second, it mentions the Lord whom ye seek, 
who is especially designated as the messenger of the covenant, Malak Habarit. The Kirtland Temple was finally dedicated on March 27, 1836, as recorded in DNC 109. In his dedicatory prayer, the Prophet Joseph Smith besought the Lord, quote, to accept of this house the workmanship of the hands of us, thy servants, which thou didst command us to build, DNC 109.4. The Prophet further pled, quote, O hear, O hear, O hear us, O Lord, and answer these petitions and accept the dedication of this house unto thee, the work of our hands, which we have built unto thy name, DNC 109.78. On April 3, 1836, one week after the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, the Messenger of the Covenant, the Lord himself, suddenly came to his temple, in the most literal sense, appearing as a glorified, resurrected personage, quote, standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit, close quote, which had the appearance of, quote, a paved work of pure gold in color like amber, close quote, as if it were the caporet, i.e., the atonement lid, of the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies in the ancient Israelite tabernacle or temple. This event invites comparison to the, quote, paved work of a sapphire stone, as it were the body of heaven in its clearness, close quote, upon which the Lord stood when he appeared to Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel on a temple-like mountain in Exodus 24, 1-11. As Jehovah, the same God who appeared to Moses, Aaron et al., he declared in the newly built temple, quote, I am the first and the last. I am he who liveth. I am he who was slain. I am your advocate with the Father. Behold, your sins are forgiven you. You are clean before me. Therefore, lift up your heads and rejoice. Let the hearts of your brethren rejoice. And let the hearts of all my people rejoice, who have with their might built this house to my name. For behold, I have accepted this house, and my name shall be there. And I will manifest myself to my people in mercy in this house. DNC 110, 4-7 The messenger of the covenant claimed the temple as his, and the prophecy of Malachi 3, 1 stood fulfilled anew. See DNC 110, 1-10 The dispensation of the gospel of Abraham was committed to Joseph and Oliver at this time through an Elias, with the promise, quote, that in us and our seed all generations after us should be blessed, DNC 110.12, anticipating the complete eschatological fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. 2. Jesus Christ as Messenger, the Messenger of the Covenant as the Messenger of Salvation. Having made a case for Yahweh, Jehovah, as the Lord, Ha'adon, and the messenger of the covenant in Malachi 3.1, and having established the significance of the language of Malachi 3.1 in Joseph Smith's early revelations, with the image of the messenger of the covenant suddenly coming to his temple, we proceed to a discussion of the messenger of the covenant as the messenger of salvation in the restored prologue of The Fullness of the Record of John, DNC 93.19. The concept of the Lord as messenger or angel has roots in the Hebrew Bible. In his blessing on Joseph's sons, Jacob invokes God as a redeeming messenger or angel. Quote, and he, Jacob, blessed Joseph and said, God, Ha Elohim, literally the God, 
before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God, Ha'elohim, which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel, Hamalak, which redeemed, Hagoel, me from all evil, bless the lands, and let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Genesis 48:15-16. In this blessing, the Hebrew noun Malak, messenger, angel, is used as an appositional description of the God before whom my fathers did walk, the God which fed me. Jacob's blessing echoes his vow at Bethel following his theophany there. Quote, and Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. Genesis 28.20-21 Jacob's God and redeeming angel appear to be none other than the Lord himself. The participial Hebrew term rendered which redeemed is identical with the term redeemer, goel, which is also an active participle derived from the verb ga'al. Regarding this stem, Jennifer C. Lane writes, quote, The best translation of goel is kinsman redeemer, the kind of redemption that is described by Ga'al and done by the Goel is not generic. It could not be done by anyone for anyone. It is based on familial relationship. The Goel was the oldest male member of an extended family who had the familial obligation to restore that which had become unbalanced. The Lord himself was Abraham's, Isaac's, and Jacob's redeemer, because of a family relationship confirmed by covenant. Lane continues, The Goel redeemed family members who had become enslaved for whatever reason. Maybe they had been captured. Maybe they had sold themselves or had been sold into slavery. The Goel was there to make things right and to bring family members back to their rightful place. In acting as Jacob's kinsman redeemer, i.e. HaGoel, he was acting in a covenant familial capacity. In other words, he was acting as messenger of the covenant. The function of the theophanic angel or messenger that accompanied Israel in the wilderness is similarly covenant in nature. God promised to send his angel or messenger to Israel in the wilderness to, quote, keep them in the way, close quote, just as the Lord, as Jacob's redeeming angel, kept Jacob in the way. Quote, Behold, I send an angel, Malak, other ancient witnesses, my angel, my messenger, before thee to keep thee in the way, and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him, and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice, and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies, and an adversary unto thine adversaries. For mine angel, Malachi, shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Exodus 23, 20-23 The divinity of the angel messenger is suggested by the statement, My name is in him. Shemi Bekirbo, literally, My name is within him. In other words, he had full authority to exercise divine prerogatives. As Paul noted, Jesus received the divine, quote, 
a name that is above every other name, Philippians 2.9. Matthew records that Jesus told his disciples after the resurrection, quote, All power, exousia, authority, is given unto me in heaven and in earth, Matthew 28.18. Jesus Christ, like the angel or messenger in Exodus 23.20-23, exercises divine prerogatives with all divine authority, and thus shares an identity with God as God. John 1.1 1, 1 articulates this same concept with the word being with God, Greek prostontheon, and being what God is, divine was the word, theos en hologos, translation mine. The angel or messengers bringing Israel in to the nations occupying the land of promise and cutting those nations off, is in direct fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the promise that Abraham's descendants would inherit that land. Isaiah refers back to this angel messenger and his covenant function as kinsman redeemer in the statement, quote, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence, Umalak Panah, saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them, and carried them all the days of old. Isaiah 63.9, C.F. Abraham 1.15-16. John's description of Jesus Christ as messenger of salvation in D.N.C. 93.8 should be understood within the framework of the foregoing. Furthermore, D.N.C. 93.9 clarifies through an additional appositive that Christ as messenger of salvation was also the light and the redeemer of the world. A comparison of the three scriptural versions of the beginning of the Johannine prologue, John 1.1, helps us appreciate the nuances of how Revelation helped the prophet Joseph Smith grow in his understanding of this prologue and what it meant in Christological terms. John 1.1 KJV In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. JST John 1.1 January to February 1832. In the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son, and the gospel was the Word, and the Word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. DNC 93, 8, and 29, May 6, 1833. Therefore in the beginning the Word was, for he was the Word, even the messenger of salvation, Man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence, or the light of truth, was not created or made, neither indeed can be. One of the great doctrinal contributions of John 1.1 in the canonical text, from a Christological perspective, is its assertion that Jesus Christ pre-existed with divine status. He was Theos or Theon, and in the Father's immediate presence, with God, Proston Theon. This picture accords with that of the two divine beings in Psalm 110.1 and Malachi 3.1. As Jennifer C. Lane and Keith H. Lane have explained it, quote, The Gospel of John sets out a clear pre-existence Christology, beginning by referencing Genesis 1 and the creation. Close quote. They connect this prologue to Isaiah 40, an important divine counsel text from the Hebrew Bible with members of that council in dialogue with one another. It is probably no coincidence that the Malachi 3.1 prophecy quotes from Isaiah 43, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. 
Just as there are multiple members of the divine council present in Genesis 1 through 11, in Isaiah 40, among other places, and two divine beings in Psalm 110.1 and Malachi 3.1, there are two gods in John 1.1, God the Father and the Word that was also Theos. Craig J. Osler writes, quote, Within this revelation of the DNC, the Savior confirmed that he manifested himself as the Father because he, the Father, gave me of his fullness, DNC 93.4. As a premortal spirit, Jesus was commissioned as the messenger of salvation, the light and the redeemer of the world, DNC 93.8. That is, he was given a fullness of the Father and authorized to represent him in all things pertaining to the plan of salvation, close quote. And here we do well to note that Jesus' own given name denotes Jehovah Saves, or Jehovah is Salvation, a meaning reflected in the title Messenger of Salvation. That is precisely who Jehovah, as Jesus, was and is. Just as the divine designation Lord, Ha'adon, is augmented by the appositive description even the Messenger of the Covenant, in Malachi 3.1 and 3 Nephi 24.1, the divine designation Word is augmented by the appositive description even the messenger of salvation. Christ's role as messenger of the covenant of exaltation, i.e. the Abrahamic covenant, whose promises he would perform to the utmost, and the messenger of salvation, i.e. the Father's plan of salvation, which he continues to carry into full effect, required his receiving a fullness of the Father. Similarly, our coming unto the Father to receive of his fullness, since we too are also in the beginning with God, requires our becoming messengers, like Abraham, his seed, Abraham 2, 9-11, and other prophets as follows. One of the most important results of the revelation that Jesus in the beginning was the Word, even the messenger of salvation, DNC 93.8, that man was also in the beginning with God, and that intelligence or the light of truth was not created nor made, neither indeed can be, is that the post-biblical traditionally assumed ontological difference, the difference in nature, being, or species, between God and Christ, angels and messengers, and humankind, collapses. The revelation helps us to better see what Joseph Smith was attempting to convey in the questions and answers recorded in the Sample of Pure Language. Quote, Question, what is the name of God in pure language? Answer, Amen. Q. The meaning of the pure word Amen. A. It is the being which made all things in all its parts. Q. What is the name of the Son of God? A. The Son Amen. Q. What is the Son Amen? A. It is the greatest of all the parts of Amen, which is the Godhead, the firstborn. Q. What is man? A. This signifies sons, amen. The human family, the children of men, the greatest parts of amen, sons, the son, amen. Q. What are angels called in pure language? A. Amen, angels, men. Q. What are the meaning of these words? A. Amen's ministering servants 
sanctified who are sent forth from heaven to minister four or two sons amen, the greatest part of amen son, the greatest part of amen son, sons amen son, amen, amen. From this we learn that God, angels, and the human family are all one species. See if especially Paul's use of Greek genos, family, kind, race. In his quotation of Aratus Phenomena 5 in Acts 17.28, quote, For we are also his offspring, genos, close quote. Originally, messenger, angel, Hebrew, malach, and Greek, angelos, constituted a designation of function rather than an ontologically distinct category or species. The later concept only emerged in the post-biblical period, i.e. after the 4th century BCE. In other words, messenger or angel describe the role a being fulfills rather than what a being is. Christ and humankind are angels or messengers as they are sent forth by the Father to fulfill missions in premortality, mortality, and postmortality. 3. Jesus Christ as the Message Having explicated the Christological presentation of Jesus in D&C 93.8 as the Father's messenger of salvation, the Word, it now becomes necessary to explore his inseparable role as the message of salvation, also the Word. When we ponder the most basic sense of Word as, quote, a communication whereby the mind finds expression, close quote, we can more fully appreciate the breadth and depth of what God the Father is trying to communicate to the human family in and through Jesus Christ, and thus the significance of the latter's roles as creator, savior, redeemer, exemplar, and so forth. Considered together, D&C 93.8 and JST John 1.1 present a picture of Jesus Christ as both the messenger and the message in premortality. Quote, Therefore, in the beginning, the word was... For he was the Word, even the messenger of salvation. DNC 93.8 In the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son, and the gospel was the Word, and the Word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. JST 1.1 As Latter-day Saints today, we tend to underappreciate the implications of both DNC 93.8 and JST John 1.1. From these texts, we learn that the gospel as a message of salvation, was preached in the premortal world, in the beginning. JST John 1.1 already implies what D&C 93.28 later makes more explicit. If in the beginning, meaning before the creation of the world, the gospel was preached through the Son, premortal humankind must have been the recipients of preaching there as much as here, D&C 138.56. We are more accustomed to thinking and speaking of a plan of salvation, plan of redemption, plan of happiness, merciful plan of the great creator, the plan of our God, the great plan of mercy, or some variation thereon. However, viewing the gospel as a formulated message, word, or a kerygma, quote, an official announcement or proclamation, close quote, that Jesus and others who followed him preached in the premortal world, expands our view. We can then appreciate that the preaching that Adam, Seth, Enos, Lamech, Enoch, Noah, and others carried out as preachers of righteousness, Moses 6.23, the missionary work of Abraham, 
Abraham 1, 5, 2, 15, 3, 14 through 15, the prophesying of Isaiah, Lehi, Nephi, and their successors, the teaching of the gospel by the New Testament saints, the saints early in this dispensation, and the labors of missionaries today, all represent a continuation of that premortal preaching, with Jesus himself and his doctrine as the essential message. C.F. Moses 6, 48-68, see also 3 Nephi 27, 13-22, D&C 76, 40-42. President Joseph F. Smith saw concerning the, quote, choice spirits who were reserved to come forth in the fullness of times to take part in laying the foundations of the great Latter-day work, close quote, who were, quote, among the noble and great ones who were chosen in the beginning to be rulers in the church of God, close quote, that, quote, even before they were born, they, with many others, received their first lessons in the world of spirits and were prepared to come forth in the due time of the Lord to labor in his vineyard for the salvation of the souls of men. D&C 138, 53 and 55 through 56. What constituted those first lessons? President Smith's statement that it involved preparation for the work of salvation strongly indicates that the messenger of salvation taught these first lessons, and that they included the message of salvation, the gospel preached through the Son, from the very beginning, JST John 1.1. Elsewhere, John saw in vision that the Logos, Christ, see Revelation 19.13, was the message, the word of testimony of the faithful, Revelation 12.11. The temporal horizon for the events described in Revelation 12.11 is ambiguous, but it can be seen as the same as that of Revelation 12.7-9, John 1.1, JST John 1.1, and D&C 93.8, namely, the councils held in the premortal existence. In the premortal existence, the faithful adherence to the preaching of the Son defeated Satan through Jesus Christ's forthcoming atoning sacrifice and the message revolving around that atonement. Quote, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Revelation 12.11 Those who hearkened unto the preaching of the Son of God, the word proclaiming the word, themselves became preachers of the word. The faithful followers of the Son overcame him in the same way here in mortality through the power of his atonement, and through testimonies proclaimed through consistent righteous choices, or, quote, choosing to repent and work righteousness rather than to perish, Alma 13.10. Just as the premortal war in heaven continues here on earth, and just as we, Jesus and all humankind, came from that realm to this one, so too the gospel message was sent into the world, quote, and even so, I have sent mine everlasting covenant into the world, to be a light to the world, and to be a standard for my people, and for the Gentiles to seek to it, and to be a messenger before my face to prepare the way before me. D&C 45.9 These words came in a March 7, 1831 revelation through the prophet Joseph Smith to the saints amid the, quote, many false reports and foolish stories that were published and circulated to prevent people from investigating the work or embracing the faith. Quote. This description in the DNC combines Johannine language with that of Malachi 3.1, 1, 
via Mark 1-2, Matthew 11-10, Luke 7-27, Isaiah 11-10, and 49-22. It is no small detail that this revelation personifies the gospel in words which would all be used to describe Jesus Christ himself. He is the message. He alone can bring to pass every promise in the covenant of the Father, or the Abrahamic covenant. In sum, DNC 93.8 and JST John 1.1 offer us an etiology for missionary work with a temporal horizon stretching even further back than the etiology for the organized preaching of the gospel that began as a divine decree, Moses 5.15. At the time when organized evil, secret combinations, began to take root, angels or messengers were sent from the presence of the Father to preach the gospel. Quote, and thus the gospel began to be preached from the beginning, being declared by holy angels sent forth in the presence of God, and by his own voice, and by the gift of the Holy Ghost. Moses 5.58 This followed the premortal pattern when missionary work began with the divine messenger of salvation, the Word, preaching the gospel in the premortal world, in the beginning. We might then define missionary work as follows. Missionary work consists of divinely sent messengers preaching the Father's message of salvation so that all, quote, may come unto the Father in Jesus' name and in due time receive of his fullness. DNC 93 19. Like Abraham and Sarah, see DNC 132 29. This picture considerably helps our understanding of the interrelationship between missionary work and early temple ritual as it emerged among the early saints first in Kirtland, then later in Nauvoo. To sum up, the preaching of the gospel here in mortality stands on a continuum. God the Father had the gospel, quote, preached through the Son, close quote, the messenger of salvation. The first lessons learned in the world of spirits included the message of salvation as part of the preparation for those who had preached salvation in mortality i.e., the children of God did not simply learn the gospel and eternal truths through observation. Christ taught them. The noble and great ones, in turn, taught others and continued to do so in mortality. The systematic preaching of the gospel in this world was organized to help offset the influence of secret combinations, organized evil, see Moses 5.58, following the pattern established in the premortal world. President Joseph F. Smith also saw that, quote, the great Latter-day work, close quote, of salvation for which the saints were prepared in mortality, quote, included the building of the temples and the performance of ordinances therein for the redemption of the dead, DNC 138.54. He also, quote, beheld that the faithful elders of this dispensation, when they depart from mortal life, continued their labors in the preaching of the gospel of repentance and redemption through the sacrifice of the only begotten Son, among those who are in darkness and under the bondage of sin in the great world of the spirits of the dead. Quote. And further that, quote, the dead who repent will be redeemed through obedience to the ordinances of the house of God. DNC 138, 57-58. As we will note below, the Latter-day Temple Endowment, which teaches the saints regarding their premortal identity and prepares them to preach the gospel in mortality and in post-mortality, began as a means of preparing the elders to preach the gospel and to become clean from the sins of the world. For Latter-day Saints today, 
the temple emerges as a great bridge that spans the preaching of the gospel in pre-mortality, mortality, and post-mortality. And yet, it did not arrive all at once in a sudden burst of revelation. 4. Messengers becoming like the message, the interrelationship between missionary work and early temple ritual. In a document dated October 17, 1830, Oliver Cowdery asserted that he had been commanded of God to go forth as a missionary unto the Lamanites, and, quote, to rear up a pillar as a witness where the temple of God shall be built in the glorious new Jerusalem, close quote. The setting up of pillars as witnesses constituted an important part of concluding covenants and even temple worship in ancient times. For example, the patriarch Jacob, after he had seen the Lord standing above a ladder, or rather a stepped ramp or flight of steps, Hebrew Salam, that reached to heaven along with the angels that ascended and descended thereon and had received the Abrahamic covenant for himself, quote, was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God, Hebrew Beit Elohim, house of God. And this is the gate of heaven, Genesis 28:17. The narrative then records that, quote, Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar, Hebrew Matzabah, and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel, Bethel, house of God. Genesis 28:17-19, CF 31:13 and 45. Through this ritual act, Jacob acknowledged that he had entered into the Abrahamic covenant and that the place was a temple, literally a house of God, Hebrew Beit Elohim, Bethel. Genesis 35, 9-15 describes a similar experience. Oliver Cowdery's declaration, coupled with the ritual act of setting up a pillar at an intended missionary destination among the Lamanites, suggests that the interrelated concepts of gathering, missionary work, covenant, temple, and worship existed in the minds of the prophet Joseph Smith and his closest associates even earlier than appears in canonized revelations of the DNC. The Book of Mormon itself, translated the previous year, had powerfully suggested the importance of the temple as a place of gathering and ritual. Jeffrey M. Bradshaw has adduced evidence that Joseph Smith knew a great deal about the temple and its ordinances very early on. In the same December 9, 1830 revelation, which explicitly mentioned temple for the first time, the Lord commissioned Edward Partridge as a messenger to, quote, preach the everlasting gospel among the nation. Nation has been changed to nations in the canonical text, DNC 36.5. With the mention of the Lord coming to his temple in DNC 42.36, the Lord foretold, quote, and behold, it shall come to pass that my servants shall be sent forth to the east and to the west, to the north and to the south, close quote, as messengers, DNC 42.63. Similarly, DNC 133, which promises the Lord's coming to his temple, describes the Lord sending forth the elders of the church to all the nations and foreign lands of the earth, DNC 133.7-8. And the fullness of his gospel, his everlasting covenant, reasoning in plainness and simplicity, DNC 133:57, CF verses 17 
36, and 71 through 72. These examples suggest that the concept of temple, the Abrahamic covenant, and missionary work were intertwined from the beginning of the restored church. I jump ahead now to the end of 1832 and beginning of 1833. Without question, DNC 88, which the Prophet Joseph Smith received on December 27th through 28th, 1832, and January 3rd, 1833, constitutes one of the most important canonized revelations describing the purpose of the Latter-day Temple as a place of education or divine tutoring and the concept of the Temple as a sacred ritual space. To appreciate the unique revelatory contributions of DNC 93, one must understand the function of the temple laid down in DNC 88 as a divine school and ritual space, a place for preparing messengers. The early elders were to receive intelligence, wisdom, and truth in the temple, such as would accomplish vertical and horizontal at one becoming one with the Father, with Jesus himself, and with each other. In his recorded intercessory prayers, Jesus prayed that his disciples would become one in this way. See especially John 17, 11, and 21 through 23, 3 Nephi 19, 23, and 29. As the Lord explained in this temple revelation, quote, For intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence, wisdom receiveth wisdom, truth embraceth truth, virtue loveth virtue, light cleaveth unto light. Mercy hath compassion on mercy, and claimeth her own. Justice continueth its course, and claimeth its own. Judgment goeth forth before the face of him who sitteth upon the throne, and governeth and executeth all things. DNC 88.40 It remains just as essential for Latter-day Saints today to grow in these divine virtues, and cultivate oneness with God and each other, as it was for those first recipients of the Revelation. As the Lord admonished the saints in January of 1831, just as revelations on the temple were beginning to unfold, quote, Be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine. DNC 38.27 Like the Lord, the early saints in the restored church, and saints today, we are also to serve as messengers of the Abrahamic covenant, quote, sanctified and sent into the world. John 10.36 Ultimately, Jesus Christ himself is the message. See, e.g., 1 Corinthians 2.2, Titus 1.9. DNC 88, probably more than any other text, helps us understand how and why the preaching of the gospel, and thus having one's, quote, garments clean from the blood of this generation, DNC 88.75, 85, and 138, through Jesus' atonement, constitutes such an important aspect of worship. In this revelation, which also holds forth the promise of being, quote, quickened by a portion of the celestial glory, close quote, and, quote, receiving a fullness, DNC 88.29, Jesus Christ commissions the elders called to serve missions to gather, organize, prepare, and sanctify themselves. Quote, and I give you, who are the first laborers in this last kingdom, a commandment that you assemble yourselves together and organize yourselves, and prepare yourselves, and sanctify yourselves. Yea, purify your hearts, and cleanse your hands and your feet before me, that I may make you clean, that I may testify unto your Father and your God, and my God, that you are clean from the blood of this wicked generation. 
that I may fulfill this promise, this great and last promise, which I have made unto you, when I will. DNC 88.74-75 In sanctifying themselves, the elders and saints today, emulate the Lord Jesus Christ and become more like Him. Jesus also prayed in His intercessory prayer, quote, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. John 17, 18-19 In D&C 88, 74-5, the Lord enjoins a specific form of self-sanctification through Christ's atonement. The commandment to purify your hearts and cleanse your hands and feet before me fulfilled the ethical and ritual purity requirements for entry into the Jerusalem temple according to Psalm 24, 3-4. Thus, the Lord himself could then, quote, make them clean, and testify as counsel witness, i.e., one who could offer testimony in a legal setting, in the heavenly counsel to God the Father, quote, you are clean from the blood of this wicked generation, close quote. Subsequent verses make clear that this would involve the ritual washing of the feet, see DNC 88, 138-140 and below. This washing of feet, of course, would serve as the basis for the ritual washings that later comprised part of the fuller endowment revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith and first administered in Nauvoo. The revelation in DNC 88 further links the issue of ritual and ethical purity through Christ's atonement directly to preaching of the gospel message and missionary work. Quote, Therefore tarry ye and labor diligently, that you may be perfected in your ministry, to go forth among the Gentiles for the last time, as many as the mouth of the Lord shall name, to bind up the law and seal up the testimony, and to prepare the saints for the hour of judgment which is to come, that their souls may escape the wrath of God, the desolation of abomination which awaits the wicked, both in this world and in the world to come. Verily, I say unto you, let those who are not the first elders continue in the vineyard until the mouth of the Lord shall call them, for their time is not yet come. Their garments are not clean from the blood of this generation. DNC 88-84-85 The momentous ethical obligation to deliver the message of the gospel rested upon the first laborers in the last kingdom. The Lord put it another way in the same revelation. Behold, I sent you out to testify and warn the people, and it becometh every man who hath been warned to warn his neighbor. DNC 88-81 in a real sense, the Lord was sending out these early missionaries like the prophets of old, as counsel witnesses. When they preach the gospel, the wicked, quote, are left without excuse, and their sins are upon their own heads, DNC 88-82. A failure to discharge this duty meant that missionaries still bore some culpability for the sins of those they might otherwise have helped. The effect of the faithful discharge of missionary responsibilities is summed up succinctly by anti-Nephi-Lehi's statement on how they were freed from the blood of their brethren, through Ammon and his brothers. The Lord, quote, imparted his word, i.e. Christ as the message, unto us, and has made us clean thereby. Alma 24.15 The missionary efforts of Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni, and those who went with them, represent marvelous individual and collective acts of consecration and worship. 
see Alma 27, which produced the same in the Lamanites that believed the preaching of Ammon, Aaron, and all. The ritual washing of feet apparently indicated that a missionary had faithfully discharged his duty. In D&C 88, 138-139, the Lord commanded regarding membership in the School of the Prophets, which met in the upper room of the Newell K. Whitney store, quote, And ye shall not receive any among you into this school, save he is clean from the blood of this generation. And he shall be received by the ordinance of the washing of feet. For unto this end was the ordinance of the washing of feet instituted, close quote. The final verse of the Revelation directly ties the Kirtland practice back to the Last Supper when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. It was done, quote, according to the pattern given in the 13th chapter of John's testimony concerning me, D&C 88, The washing described in John 13 was also anticipatory in nature. The Gospel of John records Jesus imploring the Father during the intercessory prayer, quote, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. John 17, 17-19 Those first apostles had been washed and pronounced clean, quote, Ye are clean, John 13.10, but would still need to stand as special witnesses to the world. In a revelation given years later on July 23, 1837, addressed first to Quorum President Thomas B. Marsh and then to the entire Quorum of the Twelve, the Lord reiterated the charge given to missionaries in D&C 88, But purify your hearts before me, and then go ye into all the world and preach my gospel unto every creature who has not received it. D&C 1.12.28 They were to constitute, quote, special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. D&C 107.23 See also D&C 107.26 Very much like the council witnesses, equipped to bear testimony on earth and in the heavenly council. Messengers bearing the message, Christ, throughout the world, emulating the master whom they worship, in the very act of bearing testimony. The Lord further reiterated and warned, quote, For verily I say unto you, the keys of the dispensation which ye have received have come down from the fathers, and last of all, being sent down from heaven unto you. Verily I say unto you, behold how great is your calling. Cleanse your hearts and your garments, lest the blood of this generation be required at your hands. DNC 1.12.32-33 Joseph's time in Liberty Jail, December 1st, 1838 through April 6th, 1839, appears to have focused and amplified his thought in terms of the temple and ordinance work for the dead, i.e. those who had been in a prison of their own. While still in Liberty Jail, Joseph's language becomes even clearer regarding not only the existence of a divine council, but a plurality of gods. While yet in Liberty Jail, he mentions, quote, the council of the eternal God of all other gods before this was, D&C 121.32, having already possibly translated Abraham 3 and Abraham's vision of the pre-mortal heavenly council, verses 22-28. He would expand extensively on that concept during the Nauvoo period from May 1839 until his death on June 27, 1844. 
the endowment would concomitantly expand during this time. When the fuller form of the endowment was introduced to the Prophet Joseph Smith in Nauvoo during 1842, the ritual expression of divine counsel theophanies became even clearer. The elders were divinely commissioned and sent forth to preach as authorized, angelicized, or divinized messengers like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Lehi when they received their prophetic commissions in the divine council. See Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, 1 through 3 and 14, 1 Nephi 1, 6 through 15. Commenting on the function of the endowment, William Hamblin has proposed the following, quote, We should understand the LDS endowment as a ritual and dramatic participation in the sowed divine counsel of God, through which God reveals to the covenanter his sowed or secret plan of salvation, the hidden meaning and purpose of creation and the cosmos, close quote. Thus, for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the divine council becomes the ritual setting for the covenants they enter into that make them heir to the Abrahamic covenant with all of its blessings. Jesus Christ is the messenger of this new and everlasting covenant and the messenger of the salvation that the Abrahamic covenant offers. Indeed, one receives salvation, perfection, and fullness in making this covenant available to others. Hamblin further remarks, quote, when we consider the endowment drama in this way, remembering that in Isaiah the meeting place of the sowed of Yahweh is in the temple, Isaiah 6.1, the endowment fits broadly in the biblical tradition of ritually observing or participating in the council or sowed of Yahweh, described in these biblical texts. Close quote. In the setting of the divine council, Isaiah received atoning cleansing at the hand of the seraph representing the Lord himself. Thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged, tekupar, literally atoned, and became like the Lord. Here am I, send me, ready to go forth as a messenger of salvation. As Latter-day Saints today, when we receive the endowment for ourselves or for the dead, we emulate and become more like the Savior when we preach as he preached and live as he lived. In so doing, we worship the Father in the name of Jesus in spirit and truth, and we come to better know and identify with them, CF DNC 9319, as we labor in their work of saving souls. To this day, we often receive this endowment as we prepare to serve missions, with the name of the messenger put upon us with Jesus as the message. One of the most concentrated periods of consecration and worship that many Latter-day Saints ever experienced in the course of their mortal lives. Considering the foregoing connections, including the Christological picture given in DNC 93.8, presenting Jesus as the divine messenger of salvation, the Word, and the message of salvation, the Word, and humankind as co-eternal, DNC 93.29, with the potential to, quote, receive of the Father's fullness, close quote, we can better appreciate the Lord's words in DNC 84. Stephen C. Harper explains that this section, quote, could be described as a revelation on temple ordinances, covenants, the gathering of Israel, missionary work, the law of consecration, and the imminent coming of the Savior to reign with my people. He declared and promised in language that expands upon Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send you out to reprove the world of all their unrighteous deeds, and to teach them of a judgment which is to come, 
and whoso receiveth you, there I will be also. For I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts, and my angels round about you to bear you up. TNC 84, 87 88. In other words, the Lord promises to go before our face as the Father's messenger of the covenant and messenger of salvation. As we go forth, sent forth as his messengers of the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham 2, 9 through 11. This is a precious promise that Latter-day Saints today should daily strive to claim with the zeal of our forebears, and in so doing become clean from the blood of this generation. DNC 8875, 85, 138. Conclusion. Several of Joseph Smith's earliest revelations, beginning with Moroni's appearance in 1823, quote Malachi 3.1, which foretells the Lord suddenly coming to his temple as messenger of the covenant. Thus, Malachi 3.1 and its quoted iterations in 3 Nephi 24.1, D&C 36.8, not only impressed upon Joseph and the early saints the urgent need to build a temple to which the Lord could come, but presented him as the messenger of the Father's restored covenant, i.e. the new and everlasting covenant, or the Abrahamic covenant. This presentation perfectly accorded with the picture given in the restored portion of the fullness of the record of John and its messenger Christology in D&C 93.8. This Christology envisions Jesus Christ as both the messenger of salvation, the word, and the message, also the word. Joseph's early revelations also describe the ontological kinship of God, the Father, with Jesus, angels, literally messengers, and humankind, laying the groundwork for the doctrine of humankind's co-eternality with God, D&C 93.29, and the notion that through worship one can come unto the Father in my name and in due time receive of his fullness, D&C 93.19, CF D&C 88.29, like Abraham and Sarah, see D&C 132.29. D&C 88, one of the most important revelations on the temple, specifies missionary work and ritual washing of the feet as a means of becoming, through the atonement of Jesus Christ, clean from the blood of this generation, D&C 8875, 85, 138. These ritual washings continued to be part of the endowment that was revealed to and through the prophet Joseph Smith during the Nauvoo period. The foregoing recommends missionary work, of which Jesus Christ himself and Abraham are supernal exemplars, as one of the most important ways in which one can worship. Temple worship today continues to revolve around missionary work for the living, the endowment, and for the dead, ordinances. The endowment, like the visions in which prophets were given special missionary commissions, e.g. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Lehi, and Nephi, situates us ritually in the divine council, teaches us with rich symbolism about the great messenger of salvation, and empowers us to participate in his great mission of saving souls. What does it all add up to? Jesus Christ, the messenger of salvation and the messenger of the covenant, embodies everything we have the hope and capacity to become. He has shown us how to worship and what we worship, and how to come unto the Father in his name and receive of the Father's fullness. We are of one species with God the Father, Jesus Christ, and angels, and are all co-eternal in nature. 
Jesus marked the path for all God's children in coming to earth and fulfilling all righteousness and mortality. Matthew 3, 15, 2 Nephi 31, 5 through 6, including undergoing baptism, receiving the Holy Ghost and the Holy Priesthood, preaching the gospel, enduring to the end, and receiving exaltation, or what Nephi called the doctrine of Christ. Jesus rose triumphant from the tomb, having conquered death and hell with a resurrected body, having become perfect, even as the Father. Matthew 5.48, Luke 16.33, 3 Nephi 12.48, and having enabled mankind to follow him into that perfection. See e.g. Hebrews 2.10-11. That is the message, the word, the gospel, or glad tidings. See also 3 Nephi 27, D&C 76. We become clean from the blood of this generation and thus become pure even as he is pure. Moroni 7.48, see also 1 John 3.3, and eventually perfect. When we emulate Jesus Christ as the messenger of salvation, we engage in the truest form of worship. As Elder Neal A. Maxwell put it, quote, the ultimate form of adoration of him is emulation, close quote. Matthew Bowen was raised in Orem, Utah, and graduated from Brigham Young University. He holds a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and is currently an Associate Professor in Religious Education at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. He is also the author of Name as Key Word, Collected Essays on Onomastic Wordplay and the Temple in Mormon Scripture, Salt Lake City, Interpretive Foundation, and Eborn Books, 2018. With Aaron P. Shade, he is the co-author of The Book of Moses, From the Ancient of Days to the Latter Days, Provo, Utah, Salt Lake City, Religious Studies Center, and Deseret Book, 2021. He and his wife, the former Suzanne Blattberg, are the parents of three children, Zachariah, Nathan, and Adele. This has been a recording of The Messenger of Salvation, The Messenger Message Christology of DNC 93.8 and its implications for Latter-day Saint missionary work and temple worship, by Matthew L. Bowen, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 51, 2022, read by Victor Worth. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license, and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are accredited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles on Latter-day Saint scripture can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.